trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, I give you Colossians 3.18 to the end of the letter. Wives, submit to your husbands in ways that are inappropriate in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. Parents, don't provoke your children in a way that ends up discouraging them. Slaves, obey your masters on earth in everything. Don't just obey like people pleasers when they are watching. Instead, obey with the single motivation of fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart for the Lord and not for people. You know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You serve the Lord Christ. But evildoers will receive their reward for their evil actions. There is no discrimination. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves, knowing that you yourselves have a master in heaven. Keep on praying and guard your prayers with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also. Pray that God would open a door for the word so we can preach the secret plan of Christ, which is why I'm in chains. Pray that I might be able to make it as clear as I ought to when I preach. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Your speech should always be gracious and sprinkled with insight so that you may know how to respond to every person. Final greeting. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow slave in the Lord, will inform you about everything that has happened to me. This is why I sent him to you, so that you'll know all about us, and so he can encourage your hearts. I sent him with Onesimus, our faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will let you know about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, says hello to you. So does Mark, Barnabas's cousin. You received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, called Justice, also says hello. These are my only fellow workers for God's kingdom who are Jewish converts. They've been an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who's one of you, says hello. He's a slave of Christ Jesus who always wrestles for you in prayers so that you will stand firm and be fully mature and complete in the entire will of God. I can vouch for him that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas say hello. Say hello to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea along with Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After this letter has been read to you publicly, make sure that the church in Laodicea reads it and that you read the one from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, am writing this greeting personally. Remember that I'm in prison. Grace be with you.
My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Um, over the last about month and a half, we've been working our way through this letter of the Colossians, um, written by an early Christian leader named Paul, to a church in the city of Colossae in the Roman Empire. Um, and this is the final sermon in this series on the letter to Colossians. And I have to admit to you, in my original outline of the series, we were going to skip this final part of the letter and just go on to a new series without even touching it. Um, because I think I'm stating the obvious here, like this is a profoundly discomforting section of the letter. Um, what we hear near the end of Paul's letter, you heard some personal greetings, but there, there was also the section to wives and husbands and parents and kids and slaves and masters. And these things are, are part of what is known in the New Testament as a household code. Um, it shows up, I, I counted this week, I think there are at least four different letters that end with this kind of household discussion. Um, th this was not an uncommon kind of conversation to have in the ancient world, um, but it, it's really impossible to read this from 2021 in America without just feeling like keenly aware of all the horrible things that have been done in the name of this particular passage. Like in the name of these household codes, white Americans have enslaved Africans, have oppressed indigenous people, um, personally, as a female pastor, I've had plenty of people tell me not to follow God's calling on my life in the name of these passages. Um, but the reason I brought this back into this series is I thought none of us learn anything if we don't talk about it, right? Like, it, it's easy to just kind of skip the parts of the Bible we don't know what to do with and, and move on, but we don't ever figure out, like, how do we begin to untangle what does it mean that this is a part of Scripture and, and what do we do with it? Um, so we're just going to wade into the depths today and get uncomfortable together and reflect on um, what kind of conversation is happening in these sections of Scripture and what do they mean for us? So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you have been speaking to the church for a very long time in all different circumstances about what it means to be the people of Jesus. We, your people, have been listening and sometimes not listening. I'm making a whole lot of mistakes along the way. So we pray whatever truth you desire to speak, that you would just open our ears, open our hearts to hear you clearly, to hear clearly what it means to be followers of Jesus in this time and this place. It's in his name that we live and trust. Amen. Well, let me begin by just kind of painting you a picture of what the world looked like at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. Um, from what we can tell of data we have of the Roman Empire during this time, at least in the kind of centralized regions of Rome, uh, around one-third of the population in Greece and Italy in the central Roman Empire were slaves. And during this time, it's really important to mention slavery was not racialized the way it has been in an American context. The, the idea of race is kind of a later invention, um, but slavery was a very prevalent thing. You could become sla a slave in a variety of ways, um, often it was when people were taken captive in times of war. If your people were captured in war, you'd become a slave. Um, you could be sold as a slave to pay your debts. Um, but a large portion of the people who were in slavery during the first century were there because somebody way back in their ancestry had been captured in war, and now they were kind of birth slaves. They were born into a slave family. 
Um, there, there was a pretty wide array of different tr ways that slaves were treated, sometimes much better, sometimes much worse, but the reality of slavery is that it's still slavery, right? Your life is dictated for you. Um, there were no inheritance rights for slaves in the Roman Empire, which means you could never like, inherit any money from your parents. Now, in terms of the life of the household, um, each kind of household unit in this time would function a little bit like a mini village. Um, the head of household was kind of the, the patriarch of the house, the man of the house, and he had basically absolute authority in that setting. So a household might include parents, children, extended family, renters, slaves, like you might have a whole kind of household complex here, but the, everybody took orders from the male head of the household, whatever religion he practiced, everybody else practiced. Um, women were considered inferior humans under the authority of their husband. Um, children, when children were born, children were not considered to exist. They were not allowed to live unless the man of the household chose to acknowledge their life. If not, they were just left out to die. Um, so when household codes were written during this time, household codes were written typically for the head of the household, the, the man of the house, telling him how to rule his little domain, how to rule his little kind of village. So this is the context that early Christianity is emerging into. The, this is the context when Jesus shows up on the scene. And when Jesus shows up in this first century setting, he doesn't like show up in, in ancient Palestine and just suddenly announce a social revolution. But it becomes really clear in a hurry that what Jesus is doing is fundamentally different from what everybody else is doing around. Um, you, you see hints of this just all over the New Testament. Um, for example, we, we have this story where Jesus is teaching and he's surrounded by his male disciples and Mary, the sister of Martha, comes and we're told she sits at the feet of Jesus while her sister is cooking. Now, sitting at the feet of Jesus sounds like just a phrase for, hey, sitting in a pew. Um, but what sitting at the feet of someone actually meant in this ancient context is that they were a disciple of a teacher. By sitting at Jesus' feet and having her position validated by Jesus, Jesus is essentially accepting her publicly among the disciples in some way. Not one of the 12, but among the male disciple community. Um, after the resurrection, Jesus sends the women to tell the men. Like something strange is going on with relation to Jesus and gender. Um, the New Testament also notes that Jesus spoke of children as, as human beings who deserved honor from the community, as, as people who could be learned from. This was extremely unusual. Um, with respect to slaves, we don't actually see in the New Testament a lot of interaction between Jesus and slaves or the concept of slavery, um, in part because during this time in Jewish history, slavery was not a big part of the scene in Palestine, the area where Jesus is living. Um, but we do hear Jesus say all sorts of things that certainly would have been heard as relevant to this topic. Jesus says super radical stuff, like he says, woe to the rich and blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted. And Jesus comes in, in Luke chapter 4 when he announces his ministry. The first thing he says he's come to do is free the captives. When Jesus is telling his disciples what they're called to do, he, he says that anybody who wants to be great must be the least and a slave of everybody else. That's the mandate he gives to his male disciples. Like, if you want to be with me, you go under everybody else. 
So Jesus has left kind of all kinds of breadcrumbs on the field. And in the early church, after Jesus leaves and the Holy Spirit comes on this, this day called Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit comes in a way that clearly plays out all the implications of what Jesus has been saying and doing. Um, because when the Spirit of God comes on the early church, it sho- everybody is shocked because God's Spirit comes on both men and women. God's Spirit comes on the Jews, but also on the Romans. God's Spirit comes in the book of Acts, and this is really important and really fascinating. When God's Spirit comes in Acts, we're told it comes on all the members of the household, which includes the slaves who were serving the household. And so as we read along the New Testament letters, you can see that Paul and the early church are beginning to grapple with the implications of like, what is this new thing that God and the Spirit is doing? Um, You see this in Colossians just a little bit earlier. In Colossians 3.11, Paul says, in this image, in God's image, there is neither Greek, that's a Roman, nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people. This is Paul's great declaration of the revolution that has just happened in Jesus. There's no Jew and Roman. There's no slave and free anymore. It's just Christ in all people. Um, This comes up again in in Galatians chapter 3. Paul makes a similar statement. And you can often tell when statements like this come up over and over in the New Testament. This is something probably the church is reciting as a core idea, a core doctrine in the church. Paul says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. Notice that one's added this time. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of core statement of faith of the early church of what God has done in Jesus. There is no artificial hierarchies and distinctions anymore. The movement of God in Jesus has been a radically equalizing movement. Um, In in Acts chapter 10, I love, you actually hear this epiphany kind of hit Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Peter apparently didn't get it when Jesus was talking about it, but he finally gets it in Acts chapter 10 when he sees the Holy Spirit come on the entire household of this Roman named Cornelius. And Peter says this, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Like Peter is having this grand epiphany. Hey, wait a minute. The old social distinctions and hierarchies no longer apply. And we, we know from the early church and that, that what happened is this kind of word got out about what was happening in Jesus is that tons of women and tons of slaves began, began to join the early Christian community. Like, they were attracted to this faith, and this is really important because they weren't just converting when the male head of household converted, they were converting on their own. They were experiencing something in early Christianity that was just radically new and liberating. I mean, slaves and masters were worshiping side by side in the same house church and calling each other brother and sister. That had, like, never happened before. That had never been, you know... No one had ever conceived of this possibility before. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, anyone who was a slave when they were called by the Lord has the status of being the Lord's free person. In the same way, anyone who was a free person when they were called is Christ's slave. 
This is the paradox for Paul. Like wherever you started out in life, when you enter into Jesus, you gain a radical new freedom. And wherever you started out in life, when you enter into Jesus, you become a radical servant, a slave of the rest of the Jesus-following community. This is, this is the paradox. All of us in some way become radically free. All of us become in some way radically servants. This is the core belief of the early church about what God is doing within the community of the church. But the big question and the practical question is like, if this is the big thing God is doing, if God is demolishing hierarchies, if God is radically equalizing, if God's spirit is on everybody, if God is accepting everyone the same, then how do we begin to live that out together? That's the question on the table. And as we reflect on how they answered that question, let, let's just note for a second um, that the, number of, the total number of Christians in the entire world at this time is less Christians that, than attend one church in Phoenix. Right? So just like wrap your head around the scale for a second. Like we have a lot of churches in Phoenix that have more people than the total Christians that existed in this time. Like, you're talking maybe a few thousand people. Like, this is an incredibly small, minute religious community. And the second thing to know is they are not living in a democracy. Nobody cares what this tiny group of religious weirdos thinks the world should be like. Right? So, so the, the questions that occur to us now as, like, a, a huge body of believers in a democratic system just were not on the minds of a few thousand people in an absolute empire um, that they're a part of. The question they're asking right now at this moment in the life of the early church is not a question primarily of social change, it's a question of household change. Like we, this tiny band of religious weirdos, like how are we going to begin to live out this revolution of Jesus within our own kind of small circles of relationship? How are we gonna begin to witness to this huge cosmic globe-changing thing that God is doing in the circle of relationships that we have here? That, that's the question. And, and the Christian household codes in the New Testament emerge from that kind of conversation. I mean, in a general sense, I, I think there are a couple things we could say looking at these codes. Um, number one, uh, writing the codes itself shows just how important your relationships at home really are. Like, if you want to know where Christian faith plays out first, like, look at the relationships closest to you. And the second thing we should note that's really important is I mentioned before, when these household codes were written in the ancient world, they only addressed the male head of household. Notice that these codes in the New Testament address everybody. Now, that might not seem incredible to you, but basically what this is saying is every single person who lives in this household is a free moral agent, a servant of Christ with choices to make as a believer, Nobody's dignity as a human, as a Christian, nobody's moral agency can be taken out of this equation. And that was something that just wasn't a part of conversations at this time. So let's just touch briefly on the, the kinds of conversations or relationships that are addressed here. Um, first, marriage. Um, Paul famously says, to wives, submit to your husbands. Now, this is like the oldest news in the world because there was not a person alive in the Roman Empire th during this time that didn't think wives should submit to their husbands. This is a completely uninteresting statement to them. What's really interesting about this statement and this part of the household code is the reason that Paul gives in some of his letters for why wives should submit to their husbands. 
Um, look at this um, same kind of part of the code from Ephesians chapter 5. Here Paul explicitly gives the reason. He says, submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husband as to the Lord. In other words, women are told to submit here not because they're women, but because submission to other people is the basic posture of every single Christian. This is what Christians do. Christians submit to each other. Christians climb under each other. Christians use whatever they have to lift each other up, to prioritize each other's needs and interests. Paul doesn't say do it because you're a woman. He doesn't say do it because the culture does it. He says do this act of submission because this is what all of us as believers in Jesus are called to do in relationship to each other. Wherever we start from, all of us are here to lift each other up. Now, what about the husbands? Um, what Paul says to the husbands, um, if you look at the household codes that are given to men, typically the instruction given to husbands is like, here's how to lead your household. Here's how to rule your household. Paul says to the husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. This statement, love your wives, this is one we just don't see in the ancient world. What does love mean to Paul? I mean, fundamentally, love means following the basic Jesus pattern of putting somebody else's good and interests ahead of yours. If you're going to love someone in a shape that is even vaguely Jesus-shaped, what that means is prioritizing the needs and the interests of somebody else. And that's what Paul calls husbands to do. Radically different kind of statement than rule or lead. Um, look at parents and kids. Um, when Paul talks to the children, he says, children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. In other words, children are being treated as disciples of Jesus who are called to obey parents as a kind of contingent step as they're learning to obey Jesus as their master. Right? They're being treated as actual disciples with real choices to make. Um, to the parents, Paul says, Parents, don't provoke your children in a way that ends up discouraging them. Um, I should note here, this is not actually the word parents. This is the word fathers. Um, the principle might be applicable to both mothers and fathers both, but Paul's specifically targeting the men here. Don't provoke your children. Don't push your children so hard and so harshly that it ends up discouraging them or breaking their spirits. Paul's addressing the men here as the disciplinarians, often in the household. And then Paul turns to this really complicated subject of slaves and masters. And this is where it gets really tricky. I mean, there are a couple of reassurances Paul gives right off the bat that are really important for those who are Christians in a position of slavery. Um, one thing Paul says is this. You know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. That's what you're going to receive as a follower of Jesus. Um, remember that during this time, slaves could not receive an inheritance in the Roman Empire. And Paul is basically saying here, you are a full citizen, a full son and daughter in the household of God, and all the inheritance that Jesus is giving to his people, all of that is yours. Second-class citizenship is over. The hierarchy is over. Like, you are a full son. You are a full daughter of the king, entitled to all of that inheritance. Um, verse 25, Paul also makes this interesting statement. He says, evildoers will receive their reward for their evil actions. There is no discrimination. 
This is Paul's way of saying the justice of God can be trusted for you and for your master. Like, God is just. And you better believe the justice of God is watching and is going to remember what is unfolding within this relationship. Um, This is an incredibly important reassurance if you are in a, a relationship where you don't have equal power, equal standing socially. Like Paul's saying, God is, God is watching out for this. Like God has an eye on this. Um, verses 23 and 24, um, Paul says, whatever you do, do it from the heart for the Lord and not for people. You serve the Lord Christ. I mean, Paul says to the slaves, you, you may not have an ability to change your station. Like, you, remember, not all these slaves are working for Christians. Like, there may be nothing you can do about the, the position you're working at in life, but here's what nobody can stop you from doing. Nobody can stop you from patterning your life after Jesus. Nobody can stop you from making Jesus the master you serve and the master you follow. Like, when Paul says, in Christ you have been made free and you are free indeed, this is what he's talking about. Like, when you are in Jesus, there is no circumstance in heaven, hell, or earth that can stop you from being entirely his. That freedom is given to you and nobody else gets to touch that. Now, what about the masters? Well, the first thing Paul says to the masters is, hey, be just and fair to your slaves knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Okay, don't skim past this. Listen to how radical this is. Hey, masters, guess what? Y'all are slaves too. You report to somebody. So whatever you do from here, you better conduct yourself with a, an acute realization that like you and the people beneath you, you are equal in the eyes of God. You are both accountable to somebody else. Now, second, the, the first part of this praise, be just and fair to your slaves. Um, just and fair. You are accountable for treating all of the members of your household as your brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus has shown you they are. You are accountable for treating them as brothers and sisters. We have the word justice here, but the word fair is particularly interesting because this word fair in Greek actually means equity. It's a word that's used in other parts of the New Testament to describe the economic sharing that's happening in the early church, where people with more money might sell their properties to support people who have less. I mean, this is a radical statement. Masters, be just and be equitable with your slaves. Now, I'm just going to kind of stop here for a moment and say, like, It is not fully satisfying even to pick these apart from a modern standpoint. I really wish that what Paul had written in Colossians was in the name of Jesus, patriarchy is done and slavery is over. Like, I wish that that's what it said. Um, But I think it's also worth recognizing that what Paul is doing here is he is setting up a trajectory where the natural conclusion can lead nowhere but the end of patriarchy and the end of slavery. Like, this is, this is the, the dawning of a thought that is so huge and so radical that somebody in the first century is just, like, beginning to wrap their heads around, like, what is the hugeness of this thing God is doing? Where men and women love each other and prioritize each other's interests even ahead of their own, patriarchy is toast. Like, where people across 
economic, socioeconomic, and racial boundaries treat each other as brothers and sisters and practice actual equity and actual justice and willing service to each other, slavery is over. If white Christians in North America had given the slightest bit of weight in the world to the self-giving love of Jesus, if we had taken that the slightest bit seriously, then everything that we did to African Americans, everything we did to indigenous people, and everything that continues happening in our world would never be possible. If we would just take seriously that fundamental, self-giving love that is at the heart of the Christian story. This is, this is the trajectory that the New Testament is setting us on, but that trajectory is still rolling. So what do these household codes mean to us in 2021? Well, God's word is always spoken to particular people in particular times and places to show them what following Jesus looks like in their time. And I don't think there's any, anywhere in the Bible that we read where the distance between their time and ours feels bigger. Like, this just feels like a huge gap between what context um, they're experiencing and what we experience. But the, the point of this letter in Colossians is not to tell us we should reproduce the cultural situation of the first century. Like, this is not telling us you should be like first century people. Like, it is certainly not telling us slavery is acceptable, God forbid, and it is certainly not telling us that women should stay in the kitchen. I mean, the point of this text is to tell us, like, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what time you're living in, following Jesus means radically altering all your thinking about what is normal in human social relationships. Like, following Jesus will transform things from top to bottom if you do it. And no matter who you are, no matter what position you occupy, your call, core call is to conform yourself to Jesus, who said the greatest person will be the slave, the one who is honored least will be honored most. Your call is to conform yourself to Jesus, who prioritized the interests of other people, even at the cost of his own life. I mean, imagine if we just like, began to wrap ourselves around that as an ethic for living. Your call is to follow Jesus who sacrificed his own life for the interests of other people. This, this household code in Colossians, it's not the stopping point of a conversation about this. This is the starting point. Following Jesus can never involve less than recognizing the full image of God in all people. Following Jesus can never involve less than mutual submission to each other in the name of Christ. Following Jesus can never involve less than prioritizing other people, particularly the interests of the most vulnerable. There's no exception to this. Paul says it's men, it's women, it's Jews, it's Gentiles, it's slaves, it's free, it's bosses, it's employees, every race, every nationality. This is what following Jesus means. Now, we have a lot of work left to do in 2021. Like, this is the starting bar, but we got a lot of work left. You know, if we think about marriage today, marriages are much more equal and equitable than they were in the first century. No question about that. But I, I think there are very big questions for us to ask about marriage in our time and place, and how do we keep marriage in 2021 in America from being basically an endless competition over each of our own personal self-fulfillment and self-interest, and who gets the most of what they want for them? 
Like, what does it look like to practice a marriage in which we seek the interests of our partner even ahead of our own? What does that vision of marriage look like? I mean, we live in a time in which slavery is gone, like you don't hear many people walking around defending slavery anymore, but we also live in a time that still has enormous racial inequity and economic inequity, which means that some voices get heard more than others, and some needs get more weight than other needs. So there's still an enormous question for us as the people of Jesus, like how do we practice equity even when the world doesn't? How do we do this thing Jesus is talking about where we get under each other and we use our power to lift each other up, even when it comes at our own expense? Like what does that look like for us? In every relationship as Christians, what we're seeking to do is look like Jesus. So when we have power, we use that to lift and to serve others. And when we don't have cultural power, and this is really important because this is where Christianity becomes different from the other cultural narratives we hear. Even when we don't have power in the cultural sense, we still have power in Christ to use whatever we have to bless and to serve and to heal. When we have power, we use it to lift and serve others. When we don't have cultural power, we still use the power we have in Christ to bless and to heal and to serve. I mean, no matter who we are, we are seeking to conform ourselves to Jesus who gave himself over in the interests of others. This is not the end of a conversation, this is the beginning of a conversation, right? There's so much more to say about what does this look like in action? Like, how does this play out? Um, So let me just make a quick pitch before we close in prayer. Um, We've started this new thing um, called Double Take um, during the second hour, after a half an hour for some coffee and some conversation. Um, If you are interested in talking more about this, asking questions, wrestling with what does this look like, come back to the sanctuary um, and we will have some conversation together about like what does this actually mean in 2021? Um, What questions do we bring to the table? How are we wrestling with this? So I'm so aware there's so much that could be said and needs to be said. Um, So let's pray together as we close. God, you are doing such a radical, world-altering thing in Jesus that for thousands of years we've struggled to wrap our heads around it. It is a hard and a beautiful thing to be asked to give ourselves for the interests of others. It's a hard and a beautiful thing to be told that the path to greatness is the path of service. Some days we're inspired and this all feels great and some days we're at the end of our rope and we're tempted to revert back to our old pre-Jesus life where it's about me, me, me. Forgive us for all of the ways we've misunderstood or misheard your call. Forgive us for all the times we've prioritized ourselves at the expense of others rather than the other way around. Cast before us this vision of radical kingdom service equity, transformed relationships with brothers and sisters who may not look like us or sound like us, but are still profoundly yours. Holy Spirit, we are looking for you to lead, 
we can't find this way on our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.